With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From global current affairs to art, science and culture. The documentary from the BBC World Service tells the world's stories. Search for the documentary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Vivienne Nunes. Thanks for joining the programme. A controversial new UK oil field is given the go-ahead, angering environmentalists. We'll hear from one of the companies set to profit from the project. Doubts are cast over Sri Lanka's next chunk of bailout money from the IMF. We'll find out why. And the world's oldest gardening magazine is consigned to the compost heap of history. The impact of the costs of producing the magazine, obviously spiralling over the past few years, as well as, frankly, a declining audience for it, mean that it's no longer economic to publish. More on that a little later in the programme. We start today here in the UK, where the development of a controversial oil field has been given the green light. Rosebank, which lies in the sea off the northwest of Scotland, is said to be one of the largest untapped oil and gas sites in the country, containing up to 300 million barrels of oil. It's jointly owned by the Norwegian energy giant Equinor and the British firm Ithaca Energy. But the decision by the UK Parliament to approve the project has attracted criticism from the environmental campaigners, who say it's reckless and inconsistent with Britain's 2050 net zero target. Here's Caroline Lucas, the only member of the House of Commons from the Green Party. This in a year when we've just seen the hottest July on record, when we've seen scientists absolutely distraught about the way in which the ice sheet in Antarctica is, is melting. We also know that nearly all of the scientists are telling us there should be no new oil and gas development. And I stress that word new because I'm sure you'll have government ministers come on and say we can't turn off the taps immediately. No one is suggesting turning off the taps of the oil fields immediately. What we are saying is that locking ourselves into yet more oil and gas at a time when we know we need to be phasing it out is reckless. Well, joining me now is Anna Gertner from uh, Equinor. He's the Senior Vice President for the UK and Ireland at the firm. And he's joining us from Aberdeen in Scotland. Thanks so much for making time to speak with us, Anna. How big a deal is this for Equinor? Because it sounds like there's an awful lot of oil and gas sitting there under the seabed off Scotland. Good afternoon and thanks for inviting me into your show. Um, well, we have today announced uh, the final investment decision into Rosebank, as uh, or discussed in your program, and and uh, indeed that is the first phase onto uh, a project west of Shetland, targeting in total 300 million uh, barrels of oil and gas. Um, and and you know to put that into context, um, you know 300 million barrels of oil and gas is is a lot in the UK. But it's uh, in a global context, as you know, it's, it's about three days of world production. OK, what about those concerns, though? And there are many. Uh, we heard from Caroline Lucas from the Greens Party. She's saying the UK shouldn't be locking itself into an, a further future project that will see uh, more oil and gas produced f- for years ahead. 
So um, on on that side, you know, um, the um, the the trajectory towards net zero is pretty clear, huh? and we are totally committed uh, around that. That means that we, as society, need to uh, use much less of oil and gas as as we transition towards net zero. In the meantime, however, you know, oil and gas and, and the products we derive of that are still important in the transition, and indeed will be important also after reaching net zero. So in that context, it really matters where these hydrocarbons are produced and in what kind of, um, you know, uh, regulatory and environmental regime they are produced. So many people will say though that this money could be better spent on renewables or insulation instead. And we de- yes, and we de- need to do more of everything, right? So Equinor is a broad, you know, and reliable uh, energy partner for for the, for the UK, and we have been that for forty years. We are investing into oil and gas, into offshore wind, and low carbon solutions. And you know, we're actually investing for every you know pound we invest into upstream oil and gas. We invest two into um, into the energy transition space currently. So, so I think that shows in a way the direction. But in the meantime, you know, the need for oil and gas and producing that. Uh, you know, domestically as well, and, and keeping the supply chain um, um, alive uh, is is also very important. Will this bring down energy prices for UK consumers because they're pretty high at the moment, or will this oil and gas just be sold onto international markets? So the um, the Rosebank oil will be sold to international uh, markets, while the gas will be um, you know imported uh, to to um, UK mainland. Um, so in that sense, you know, um, the the market will um, benefit from the supply side of things. However, of course, if the UK needs the oil and gas products derived from the refining of, of uh, the oil, Rosebank oil and gas, it will for sure come back uh, in, into the UK due to... Um, through the existing market uh, mechanisms, which also today ensure that the UK uh, actually imports much more oil than than, uh, we are producing domestically. All right. Anna Gertner joining us there from Equinor in Aberdeen. Thanks very much. Thank you. Russ Mould, Investment Director at AJ Bell, is joining us for today's show. Hey, Russ. Taking a look at the markets, then, I imagine there's been a pretty enthusiastic reaction to today's news. Yes, Equinol's shares on the Oslo Exchange up a couple of percent. Suncor of Canada, that's another partner in the project, up one and a half percent in Toronto. The big gainer is Ithaca, the UK company that owns a fifth of the project. It's up 8% and other North Sea oil producers quoted in the London Stock Exchange, Harbour Energy, Enquest, all up strongly as well. That would suggest that other energy companies are confident that, that they also might see other projects approved. It does. And it's also quite a, obviously a change from the UK's recent attitude to oil, which has been to tax the heck out of it with the windfall taxes. So I think they'll be um, certainly enjoying the, the, the seemingly shift in policy that the UK is going through at the moment, at least temporarily. And we are due for an election some point in the next year or so in the UK, but it sounds as though the main opposition party, Labour, has also backed this project. Leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, seems to be in favour as well. And I guess this this may be a political as much as a, a an economic and ecological decision. Rising inflation is a vote loser. Oil and gas prices have been a big part of that. And you've already seen the UK government back off on some of its promises for 2030. And also there was a UK wind project which which failed to receive a bid. Another one where work has stopped because the, the, the companies involved are having trouble making the economics stack up. 
All right. Thanks, Russ. Do stay with us. We'll be back with you a little later in the program. One of Australia's biggest accounting and consultancy firms, PwC, has come in for some damning criticism by an independent reviewer. The culture at the firm has been called overly collegial since staff were rewarded for loyalty and discouraged from challenging senior partners. The report was commissioned after a scandal involving the misuse of government tax secrets, as I've been hearing from James Thompson, a columnist at the Australian Financial Review newspaper. PwC were being investigated about their involvement in a tax leak scandal. So what happened was PwC was advising the Federal Government of Australia about how to close a tax loophole involving overseas companies. And what occurred was PwC provided some advice and got some confidential information as part of that process and then use that confidential information to design a workaround that it was then able to take to its clients such that when the tax changes were announced, PwC was able to go to multinational clients and say, hey, we can help you with this. Here's what we know and here's what you can do. And this was such a big issue that one of Australia's most senior Businessman, I guess you could say, Ziggy Switkowski, a former chief executive of Telstra, that's a big telecoms company in Australia, he was brought in to carry out an independent report. What did he find? Well, he found that the culture inside PwC was not where it should be. The company had become too focused on revenue growth and building its market share, and that had allowed some improper practices to build up. And it had particularly allowed a lack of challenge to build up in the company. So there was no truly independent board. There was a lot of power resting in the CEO's office. And that meant that when certain decisions were made, there was no pushback from anyone to say, hey, is this something we really want to do? Now, I think the other thing here is that this has been compounded a bit by the fact that PwC has a partnership model. And of course, part of the partnership model is that you get promoted and you get wealthy by really getting the support of your colleagues. So there is a sort of incentive to be nice to your uh, workmates. And that means that there's a disincentive to provide challenge or criticism or ask questions about certain business practices that might be on the edge of misconduct. So loyalty from PwC staff was rewarded over anybody raising any concerns they might have about business dealings the company was doing. Do you think that's a culture that's shared across the other big accounting firms and and consultancy firms in Australia? I think it's a culture that's probably shared across lots of professional services firms all over the world. I mean, the idea of making partner which gives you a sort of equity stake, a share of the profits of the firm, that's a big part of how you gain advancement in those professions. And that structure has its wrinkles. And you've written about the fact that there's a real irony here, because often PwC was contracted by other firms to come in and give consulting advice, and they would often impress on them the need to safeguard culture and accountability. And now it looks like they weren't listening to their own advice. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the great irony here. Whenever an Australian company seems to fall foul of regulators or get itself into some trouble, one of the first go-to 
crisis management tools is to call for an independent review and bring in a big accounting firm like PwC to conduct that review. It does seem that PwC has fallen into a lot of the traps that have become commonplace in Australian business over the last few years. You know, we've seen down in Australia a banking royal commission and scandals in our casino sectors. A lot of those were caused by an overt focus on profits. PwC regularly sort of opined on the lessons learned, but it doesn't seem to have learned those lessons itself. James Thompson speaking to me from Melbourne. And this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Suddenly my quilt is ripped off me and then my room is full of white men. And I thought, I'm done for. These are fascists. They found where I live. Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service, bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Betrayal. It runs through my life and runs through my story. I was just all alone in this vast, broken system. I never gave up my dream. Search for Lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Let's turn to Sri Lanka now. The International Monetary Fund has warned the country's economic recovery is not yet assured. It says Sri Lanka has been unable to meet its revenue targets or ensure growth, though it has tamed inflation. Last year's economic crash sparked severe shortages of food, fuel and medicine. That triggered a political crisis, and you might remember those incredible pictures of protesters storming the presidential palace and swimming in the presidential pool. Well, these protesters in the capital, Colombo, spoke to the BBC back in April 2022. After going through so many difficulties, we finally decided to come to the streets and overthrow the government. Right now, there are over 10 hours of power cuts. We don't have fuel. Uh, People have been uh, waiting for hours and hours in queues. We urge the international community to pay attention to this issue and uh, hopefully we'll overcome this uh, together. People are not going to go home. People are going to still be on the streets. It's not a one-time thing that we're going to forget this and go home. People have decided this time they're going to stay on the streets and they want the entire government to step down, basically. Well, following weeks of protests, then-President Godabaya Rajapaksa was toppled. Erin Wikra Maratne is an MP in Sri Lanka and was former finance minister, and he joins the program now. Thanks so much, Mr Wikra Maratne, for joining us. Now, this is a pretty serious warning from the IMF, isn't it? How big a risk is there? Do you think that the next chunk of bailout money won't come to Sri Lanka? Uh, yes, there were <clears throat> a few obstacles still. Uh, the government uh, has fallen short on the revenue collection, and the forecast uh, going up to December is quite substantial. Uh, it can be you know, 15%, 20%. So that will have to be tightened. And I think there are measures that need to be taken and then must be taken. The second issue was basically they were looking for some progress on debt restructuring. And uh, the Paris Club countries have some understanding on that. Uh, The Chinese, who are the largest lenders to the country, have given uh, a a, a verbal commitment on it. But I think all this needs to be translated into actually a a real agreement. And uh, still progress is to be made. So I think the staff-level agreement is going to be probably dependent over the next few weeks on whether uh, this could be uh, finalized. The other major area, uh, I think, is that, you know, uh, we are in a stabilization phase, as you know, from the social revolution of last year. 
uh, and not got into the economic growth phase. So the economy is still shrinking. Yeah, how and, does, um, what does need to change for the economy to start growing then? Uh, yes, it will involve a lot of reforms, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> so I would say two things. Uh, one is reforms, right? And the government what brought in reforms? an anti-corruption law. Mm-hmm. They also brought in a law to do with uh, making the central bank independent. <clears throat> but I think there are lots of other reforms in energy, climate change, state-owned enterprises. And generally, the rule of law is a huge area of concern. So, the, And the reason uh, many people don't connect this with the economy, but it does, because if you look at Sri Lanka in the doing business index, it's it's about 99. But if you look at it in terms of enforcement of contracts, Sri Lanka is about 164. So this whole issue about confidence, you see, and confidence comes through the rule of law. uh, And sometimes it's not in the tick box of even like the IMF, but that's critical because ultimately to turn it around, uh, you will need to have uh, investment and then the market sentiment has to be positive so that the funds will flow in. And just briefly, when we covered this story last year, there were really dire shortages of food and fuel and medicine. What, that's no longer the case. But what is the economic situation like right now for the average Sri Lankan? Just briefly, if you would. <clears throat> Yes, yeah, so uh, I would say certainly the f- f- fuel and gas queues are gone. On the medical front, there are lots of needs. I mean, long queues for dialysis, long queues for operations, shortage of medicines, and that that's still there, and that needs to be absolutely corrected. So uh, for the average Sri Lankan, times are still tough because unemployment has gone up, wages haven't gone up. Inflation, the positive side is, has been coming down, which is a positive Uh, But uh, people are still really struggling and uh, malnutrition has gone up. Uh, The poverty numbers have really doubled in this short period. So we are still a long way to go in terms of recovery. Okay, Erin Wikwa-Maratne joining us from Colombo there, a former finance minister in Sri Lanka. Thank you very much. The world's oldest gardening magazine, Amateur Gardening, is to close after nearly 140 years. The British publisher behind the weekly publication says the rising price of seed packets, which it gives away with each edition, has affected profits. But it's also suffering from an industry-wide fall in advertising revenue. The magazine's editor, Gary Coward-Williams, looks back at the magazine's origins. Prior to Book Magazine's launch in 1884, there wasn't a great deal of home gardening going on. Amateur Gardening was the first magazine to be launched for the the, the, the new rising breed of, of home gardener. This all came about from the uh, expansion of towns and cities and the Industrial Revolution, probably nearer the sort of 1850s when people were coming into towns to get work from, you know, from the countryside. So suburban landscape started to grow, houses were being built, houses had back gardens and uh, people started thinking about gardening for themselves and and interestingly when the magazine was launched and uh, in, in, in 1884 there was a real outburst of anger from professional gardeners who felt that we were giving away too many professional secrets in both wars first and second the magazine was extremely useful because people needed to grow their own fruit and veg and amateur gardening was a huge player in the dig for victory movement in the second war well, Jason Orme is the Managing Director of Lifestyle. That's the company that publishes Amateur Gardening. He told me why he took the decision to close the magazine. In simple terms, it no longer makes money. The magazine's been, as you know, going for over a century, diligently helping the nation's 
amateur gardeners to improve their own plots and really speaking to millions over the years. And ultimately, the impact of the costs of producing the magazine, obviously spiraling over the past few years, as well as, frankly, a declining audience for it, mean that it's no longer economic to publish. And as I understand it, every copy of the magazine has always been sold with a packet of seeds. That's right. Yeah, we always take the view that we wanted to start people off on that sort of gardening journey with a very kind of practical offer of of a pack of seeds. And that's just one of the contributing factors to those rising costs. Obviously, they cost a lot more than they used to to produce. The market, as we put the price up for the magazine, began to decline. And and ultimately, that I think an awful lot of businesses are facing that at the moment in terms of just that pinch point of where pricing meets cost. And for us, it just became un- uneconomical, really. And of course, the wider story here is, I guess, another nail in the coffin of the print media. We do have far fewer magazines published and available in the UK today than there were, say, 20 years ago before the internet. Why is it so difficult in the UK to keep a magazine going? I'm thinking of other markets like Japan, where there's a thriving magazine industry. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think Obviously, there's an awful lot of magazines in Britain historically. Obviously, Amateur Gardening was going for 139 years. So you have that long legacy of a lot of magazines. I mean, you only need to go into the high street retailers to find hundreds still of titles. You know, so it's a big market that's pretty saturated, I think. And therefore, as the audience begins to decline, you know, clearly magazines like Amateur Gardening, the content and the advice that they provide is often really better served and much easier to access online. So people are looking for answers to gardening problems. And for the most part, clearly using a search engine to type that question in rather than waiting for it to be answered in a weekly magazine is clearly more practical for most people. So that's really the reality of it. I think equally, you know, we found that the cost of producing that magazine with the cost of paper and print distribution, all those things really beginning to impact on the economics of it. And and I think more widely, we're finding that there's still a very significant market for an appetite for magazines, I think, from readers. But I think where it gets to those smaller specialist niches, and sort of despite its title, Amateur Gardening, really was, was read by people who were, you know, loyal, keen, regular gardeners. And I think ultimately they were not quite big enough in number to support it. So I think we are still finding, you know, there's demand for mags. But in truth, as a publishing company, you know, we have more readers of garden articles and garden content now than we ever did. And we've got millions rather than tens of thousands. And obviously, it's easy for people to access online. So I think we have to go where the market is. Uh, We recognize that I think print will continue to be key part of what we do as a business for many years to come. But clearly, we have to be selective, I think, about the audiences that we speak to and where they want the information. Will Amateur Gardening be available online then? The content that it provided over the years is available on some of the garden sites that we run, including homesandgardens.com. And so we've managed to find a, an audience for the content that's been there over the years already. And of course, the, the beauty about gardening is that actually the advice never really changes. Obviously, you do get some new techniques coming through. But you know what's true in gardening now was true 10, 15 years ago. So we, yeah, we're absolutely finding what we like to call an evergreen, excuse the pun, sort of audience for that content now. Publisher Jason Orme. The US competition watchdog has launched a lawsuit against Amazon. Russ Mould from AJ Bell is back with us to tell us more. Russ, what's Amazon accused of doing exactly? It's accused of using what the Federal Trade Commission called monopolistic practices, uh, unfair competition and unfair incentives, and, and even accused of, of price gouging. It's a second brush with, with the FTC for Amazon, which has also been investigated for how it attracts people to use its prime service. Amazon, for its part, has denied all of this, 
says it will fight it. So we now see what comes out of the courts. And if the courts decide that they aren't happy, there could be damages or forced divestment or even forced changing practices. Amazon's share price, however, down an enormous one half of 1% today after a massive run this year. So at the moment, shareholders not too worried. Thank you very much, Russ Mould. Now, you might be familiar with llamas and alpacas, but have you heard of vicunas? They're the smallest camelid in the world, and their wool is one of the most expensive, with a scarf going for more than $3,000. But the industry could be at risk, as the BBC's Stefania Goza reports from Peru. Vicuña wool is the finest wool in the world, and that makes it one of the most expensive. Come with me to Lucanas, a small town in the Peruvian Andes. They're the only farming community with a public license to shear the vicuñas that roam across the nature reserve of Pampa Galeras, home to the largest population of vicuñas. I visited their president, Aldo Spinoza. Muy buenas tardes. Thanks to vicuña wool, our community can pay park rangers and other workers like people who catch and shear. The price of the fibre goes down every year, but production costs increase. Right now, I can tell you that communities that shear vicunas are not profiting from the sale of the fibre. What could we do? Create added value. But it's not easy, because we'd need machines to process the fibre, to remove the pilling and to spin the wool. We can't do that because machines are extremely expensive, so we have no other option than to keep selling and to try to survive with whatever we can get from that. The community once received 520 US dollars for each kilo of vicuña fibre. Now, that price has fallen to 280 dollars. The viability of the vicuña fibre industry is vital for more reasons than just the economy. Here's Alexander Kasterin, Senior Advisor for Trade, Agriculture and Environment at the International Trade Centre. The main country where vicuña is found is in Peru. And between 1937 and 1965, the population of vicuña in Peru fell from around 400,000 animals to 10,000. So this is a case of being near to extinction and was due to the indiscriminate hunting for the hides and fibre of the animal. In the 1970s, the authorities introduced legislation to protect the animals. And the most important feature of this was to assign rights to the indigenous community to benefit economically from the management of the animals. This was later extended to companies. So communities and companies from the 1970s onwards had an economic stake in the conservation of the species. And by 2011, the number of animals had risen to 460,000, which was really a testament to the success of the policy. The falling price of vicuña fibre is a concern for farming communities, but also for scientists. The ceremony of the Chaku, where hundreds of villagers gather to circle and shear vicuñas, is also used by vets to control the health of the animals. Here's Santiago Paredes, the head of the Pampa Galeras National Reserve. Chaved vicuña is like a saved vicuña because uh, if if we shave a vicuña, this vicuña is it's not important for the hunter to to kill. So if the price keeps going down, do you think that there will come the day when people from Lucanas won't want to participate in the chaco anymore because it's not profitable? Yes, uh, and that happens. In the last two years, there were uh, less people who wants to do chaku, or, or there's more people who want to go for mine, because mine pays more than 
tan vicuñas fibers. The BBC's Stefania Goza with that report, and you can hear more of Steph's report from Peru in today's Business Daily. But that brings us to the end of this edition of World Business Report. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.